Let's begin John chapter 6, verses 41 to 45. 41 to 45. From the Father to the Son. 641. The Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Christ, for sending him. But especially, Father, we are mindful this hour that we cannot come to him, we cannot believe unless you draw us. We thank you, Lord, that we who truly do believe have been drawn. You have effectually drawn us, you have saved us, and we possess eternal life. Thank you for this blessing. Teach us, Lord, to believe this, to be joyfully believing this, joyfully believing this truth. May we not, Father, resist. May we not kick and scream. May we not complain and grumble. May we accept this joyfully as your word, your truth, and the only way of salvation. In Christ, amen. We know in our chapter, John chapter 6, at the beginning of the chapter, in the first part, Jesus has fed the 5,000 men plus women and children. It was late in the day, and because of that, he helped meet an immediate need. This was not a way to attract the crowd. It was a way to help the crowd that was listening to his teaching. He did so, but the crowd misunderstood, and they thought that he would be their king to provide for their physical needs. And they tried to take him by force and make him king. In verse 15, it says, Although they knew him to be the prophet predicted in the Old Testament, such as in Deuteronomy 18, yet they thought that that prophet was coming only for their material wealth, for their material possessions. They did not look beyond the material to see the significance of what Jesus performed right before their very eyes. Their mind was fixated and focused on the physical, material world. They did not have spiritual eyes to see beyond and to understand why Jesus did so, to show that he himself is the bread of life. When they, after a, a pause, after a pause when they were separated from him, when they meet up with him again, they ask him about how he arrived in that place on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Christ went straight to the heart of the matter and told them that they don't seek him because they saw signs, they saw miracles, and they believed in the purpose of those miracles. He says in verse 26 that they came to him because they ate of the loaves and were filled. They had plenty of food to eat and they were full and they wanted somebody to continually provide plenty of food for them. 
Instead of looking for spiritual food, they wanted physical food. Then they misquote or misapply a passage from the Old Testament in verses 30 to 35. And Jesus confronts that and says that he himself is this bread that they need. He says in verse 35, I am the bread of life. Yes, Moses provided you miraculous bread called manna in Exodus chapter 16. And that provision was given to them for 40 years. 40 years of daily miracles, six days a week. Miracles. That's what they were given. However, they didn't look beyond it. They were only concerned about what they were going to eat day by day. And at times they even complained that their food was the same every day. They were grumblers and murmurers throughout the 40 years and caused great trouble to Moses. Well, Christ here clearly tells them he is the bread that they need from heaven. Well, in 36 to 40, he explains the fact that they don't believe and how they would believe if they did believe. That is, in verse 37, all that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. They don't believe, but if they do believe, how would it be that they come to believe? Verse 37 and also verse 39 Explain, verse 39, and this is the will of him who sent me that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. The last day is the day of resurrection. He's putting forth a wonderful promise here, a wonderful gift here, that they would have eternal life and the resurrection of the dead that is preached in the Old Testament, which was the hope of the fathers, as the Apostle Paul describes it that this hope of the fathers, the ancient patriarchs, that they wanted to rise from the dead and experience life with God forever and ever in their immortal bodies. Not in their weak bodies now, but immortal bodies in the future. That was the hope that they had to be with God forever and ever. And he's putting this forth, and they still don't understand He's putting this forth, and they still are resisting it. That's where we pick it up in verse 41. In 41, the Jews, therefore, were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Notice first, it says they were grumbling about him. And in 43, do not grumble among yourselves. These people were grumblers. These people were complainers. They were fault finders. They were people who were nitpicking at the issues that Jesus brought up. Jesus is putting forth something very glorious and good to them. Something that is marvelous and that lasts for all eternity. And they are focused on other matters. They're trying to minimize what he's saying and go to other matters. And what is the matter that they want? We've already said. They just want a king who will ensure that they have their physical daily provisions given to them. They're not concerned about eternity. They're only concerned about the pleasures, the luxuries, the comforts of this life and have no concern about the life to come. This grumbling attitude 
is an attitude of unbelievers. We already noted in verse 36, he told them, you do not believe. Verse 36, you do not believe. And in verse 61, but Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled at this, said to them, does this cause you to stumble? Verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. Out of that crowd, that crowd size, it was diminished, and it was so diminished by the end of this dialogue or discourse he has with them that by verse 66, 66 to 71, the only ones left are the 12 disciples. That's the result the final result of their grumbling. They just disappear. They weren't around anymore. So a sign of a grumbler or a sign of an unbeliever is that he's a grumbler. He's a complainer. He's not grateful and pursuing the spiritual truths that he should be pursuing. Jude told us this in Jude 16. These are grumblers finding fault following after their own lusts. They speak arrogantly, flattering people for the sake of gaining an advantage. They are grumblers. He's describing unbelievers. Remember also, in the wilderness generation, they grumbled. Keep your place here in John 6, and let's see a few examples of them grumbling. Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11, verse 1. Numbers 11, verse 1. Now the people became like those who complain of adversity in the hearing of the Lord. And when the Lord heard it, his anger was kindled and the fire of the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. These people in chapter 11 complained or grumbled. God hears our grumblings and God sends forth punishment because of grumbling. Numbers chapter 14. Numbers chapter 14, verse 1. Numbers 14, verse 1. In this case, the 10 spies out of the 12 bring back a demoralizing report as to whether they would be able to conquer the Canaanites. And when the people hear it, Numbers 14.1, then all the congregation lifted up their voices and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole congregation said to them, Would that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would that we had died in this wilderness. And why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So they said to one another, let us appoint a leader and return to Egypt. Do you see the kind of unbelief here? They think that God is intending to slay them by the sword of the Canaanites when God is assuring them, no, that's not going to happen. They didn't believe God's promise. They did not believe that God would give them victory. And they are so miserable in their complaint that they said, it's better, it would have been better if we would have been put to death 
by our, our excessive slave uh, uh, holders, the masters in Egypt. We would, it would have been better for us for them to stone us to death in Egypt or whip us to death in Egypt or to make us so exhausted by the labor out in the fields making bricks. It would have been better for us to die there, they're saying. You see how worthless and miserable they are as unbelievers? Or they even say, it's better to die in the wilderness. Let's just die here in the desert, which means take away the manna, take away the quail, take away the miraculous water. All of these were miracles. Take away all of these things and let's just die here. That's the kind of unbelief they possess. Another example, Numbers 16. Numbers 16. Here we have 250 men who rise up against Moses and Aaron. 250 men rise up against Moses. This is known as Korah's rebellion. Korah was the chief uh, antagonist, the chief adversary in this incident. And so it says, finally, in verse 11, 1611, Therefore you and all your company are gathered together against the Lord. But as for Aaron, who is he that you grumble against him? He tells them that their grumbling is actually against God, even though the recipients of those words are Moses and Aaron, and although they want to usurp Aaron's authority as the high priest, that's what their intention is, Moses and Aaron are not really the ultimate objects of their complaint. They are just an agent of it, or they are the recipients of it. Ultimately, they are complaining against God, because it was God who called Aaron. Aaron didn't call himself to be the high priest. God called Aaron to be the high priest. Therefore, God is their ultimate object of contempt. They are against God. Well, to summarize these incidents and many others in our passage uh, or in Numbers, the Apostle Paul said, with most of them, God was not well pleased, for they were laid low in the wilderness. They were laid low. That means they died in the wilderness with most of the people who came out of Egypt, who passed through the sea on dry land, who saw as eyewitnesses, hundreds and thousands and millions of them, they saw various miracles that took place in Egypt and in the wilderness. They saw it. But they were unbelievers because they grumbled. They grumbled. And therefore, in 1 Corinthians 10.5, the apostle says, with most of them, God was not well pleased. That's why they died a miserable death in the wilderness. The opposite, though, of a grumbler is a thankful person. A thankful Christian is actually the opposite of a grumbling Christian. In fact, a grumbling Christian should be a contradiction. It should be an oxymoron. It sh they should not go together. A Christian should be thankful. He should have a thankful heart. Is that not what the apostle encouraged us in 1 Timothy 2, 
in verses one and two, when he encouraged us, he says, first of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men for kings and all who are in authority, right? He says he, that we should be mindful to be thankful for what we have because it's not, even though our situation is bad, almost universally around the world, everyone's situation is bad because of the governing authorities, but compared to other nations and other places of the world, it's not as bad as that place, so be thankful. Be thankful for what we have here. Remember also, we are not to be anxious for anything. Philippians 4, 6 and 7. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, he says. Yes, it's good and right to pray, to petition God, appeal to God for what we need to overcome our hardships and anxieties. But we have to also do it with thanksgiving. Because the heart of a Christian is never devoid of thanksgiving. And that's why he says we have to remember to put thanksgiving there in our prayers to God. And also, 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 to 18. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God for you. In Christ Jesus, right? Rejoice always. How can you rejoice unless you're thankful? You know what you have. Pray without ceasing. We Yes, pray without ceasing, but how? In everything, give thanks. Give thanks for everything that we have and everything we experience. That's the opposite heart. The heart of an unbeliever is a grumbler, a complainer, a disputer, a fault finder, a nitpicker. That's the heart of an unbeliever. But the heart of a believer is thankful, is grateful, and understands what they possess in Christ. Further, verse 41. Verse 41, John 6, 41, they say, because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. Because they said, he claims to have come down out of of heaven. And their enigma or their confusion is contrasted in verse 42 or further explained in verse 42. And they were saying, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? They are perplexed purportedly perplexed. That is, they're saying, he is here. We know who his father and mother are, Joseph and Mary. We know that. We know where he's from. We even know the occupation of his father and likely Jesus' own occupation. We know that. And all of it is no name and lowly. These people were obscure people in a small town with no name and with no reputation they did not have great wealth. They did not have great authority. None of them were kings or, or noblemen, nothing like that. So why is it or how is it that he says, I am the bread that came down out of heaven? What's their problem? What's their problem? Their problem is they're looking at things in fleshly, worldly, carnal ways. They're looking at things the way the average person 
looks at reality. What is it when we are not thinking biblically we do to respect somebody else? How much money does he have? Is he handsome? Is she beautiful? Right? Does he have a position of power and authority? Does he have degrees? Right? Does he have a bachelor's degree? Does he have a master's degree? Does he have a PhD? Right? These are the ways in which we, in the world, try to estimate or esteem other people. That's what their problem was. Because they were focused on that, those worldly and carnal ways of esteeming people or not esteeming them, they couldn't see beyond the truth that he proclaimed, the truth that's in the Old Testament proclaimed for many generations by the prophets. They couldn't see beyond all that to just get to the truth and believe in the truth. They couldn't do it. Let's see another example of this. One in John. John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We have Philip who goes to his friend Nathaniel. We'll, we'll begin at verse 43. John 1, 43. The next day he purposed to go forth into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Nazareth to us, because we are Christians and because we read the Bible, the word Nazareth is not necessarily to us an obscure word. We think that we, if we don't know history and geography, then we wouldn't think that Nazareth was an insignificant place unless we read it in a passage like this. Because we know Jesus is sometimes called Jesus the Nazarene or Jesus of Nazareth in Scripture, the word itself is not an, a word of ill repute to us. It's a word of reputation to us. However, in, in the context of John chapter 1, the city of Nazareth or the town of Nazareth was very small. It was in the region of Galilee. In Galilee, that's not where the Jews mainly lived. They mainly lived in the south, in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, in Judea. That's where they lived. But the Gentiles and, and a mixed race of people lived in Galilee along with a few Jews. And so there was disdain from the south, from Judah to the north in Galilee, a disdain toward those people. And it was basically written off. It was basically a place of contempt for them. So the region is a contemptible place, but the city itself is in a very small and obscure city. So why should we pay attention? What's happening? The same problem. Instead of contemplating the truth, instead of being focused on the truth of the matter, they are fixated on the circumstances and they can't see beyond the circumstances to believe in the truth. Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, verse 1. Our second example of this. Mark 6, verse 1. 
And he went out from there, and he came into his hometown, which is Nazareth, his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue, and the many listeners were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is this wisdom given to him and such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his own relatives and in his own household. And he could do no miracle there except he laid his hands upon a few sick people and healed them. And he wondered at their unbelief. Their unbelief. And what is the problem? He's teaching in the synagogue. And it says in verse 2, Many listeners were astonished. Why? Because he was teaching them accurately, teaching them with authority from the scriptures. But this man was only a carpenter, right? Where did he get the wisdom? Carpenters don't typically have wisdom from scripture. That's the way they connect that. So they have that reason to disdain him. Where in the world did he get this wisdom since he's a carpenter? That's one of their objections. And these are townsmen. These are townsmen. So now we have an aggravated situation. Not only are all the townsmen obscure people because they live in Nazareth, now one obscure group is attacking an, an, an obscure man, that is, Jesus, and saying, is this not the carpenter? So within the town, you're going to have elders, you're going to have judges and rulers, correct? You're going to have the the senior men who control the the government and the circumstances, the business of the town, right? You're going to have them, but Jesus isn't one of them. So among the obscure, you still have a hierarchy where those who have wealth and those who have power in this obscure small town look down on somebody else, Jesus. And they say, we know uh, Mary... James, Joseph, Judas, and this Judas is not the same as Judas Iscariot, another Judas, uh, a sibling of Christ. Judas and Simon, along with his sisters. So, they disdain him. They grumble. They can't look beyond it. But then, we must ask, should they have looked beyond it? Why do they complain in John chapter 6 that he says... I am the bread that came down out of heaven. They complain. How could it be that this obscure man could be someone from heaven? How could it be that this obscure man could be someone from heaven? Let's look at an example of this. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Isaiah 9 one and following is one of the many prophecies of Isaiah the prophet. One of the many prophecies from verses 1 to 7. Isaiah 9, verse 1. 
Notice here, we're going to have both obscurity and royalty. Obscurity and royalty combined in one person. Verse 1. But there will be no more gloom for her who was in anguish. In earlier times, he treated the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali with contempt. But later on, he shall make it glorious by the way of the sea on the other side of Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation, you shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Midian. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult and cloak rolled in blood will be for burning fuel for the fire. Here we have the royalty. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. In verse 1, this light, verses 1 and following, this light is Christ. And this Christ appeared in Galilee, and Galilee of the Gentiles. Remember, by that point in history, by the time of Christ, it was primarily populated by Gentiles, not Jews. Primarily, not exclusively, primarily by Gentiles. That's where Jesus' hometown was. Nazareth was in Galilee. We saw that from John 1, 43 and following. Remember, Nathaniel, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? So the glorious part, the royal part, is in verses 6 and 7. The government will rest on his shoulders, this son, this child, born and given to us. He is wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace, His kingdom, his government knows no end. It's forever and ever on the throne of David. There we have a perfect example of how someone of a high position and a low position are combined in one individual, in Christ. That should not have been a surprise to them because they knew they would have... Uh, known and read and heard parts of the Old Testament read week by week whenever they worshiped in the synagogue. It should not have been a surprise to them. But also, turn back in John chapter 5, John chapter 5, was it the case that Jesus explicitly told them that he possessed this deity in human flesh? John chapter 5. Remember Jesus healed a man on the Sabbath day and the Jews objected to it. And notice how Jesus answers their objection. John 5, 16, 5, 16. And for this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, my father is working until now and I myself am working. 
For this cause, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. This shows that Jesus clearly announced to them, and they understood it. That's why they wanted to kill him. That he was indeed one who possessed deity in human form, in the flesh. 100% God, 100% man combined in Christ. That's what he was declaring. And they knew it and wanted to kill him. Now, that is possible, Isaiah just showed us from Isaiah 9, just to use one Old Testament example. That Jesus clearly told them is evident from John chapter 5. So they should not have been grumbling that Jesus said these things, claimed these things. They should have wanted it. Well, when we read this from verses 41 to 43, we might be apt to be discouraged, disappointed, and just wondering, bewildered, what's going on here? If people are this way, and we know the way we used to be, if people are this way, and very few people see, should we be discouraged about this? No. Because verses 44 to 45 teach us this is what God intends. This is what God intends. This might sound new to you, but it's not new in Scripture. It's throughout Scripture. That among not the whole world, but the many people who claim the faith, and even many people around the world claim the faith, it's really a remnant, a small portion of them who truly do believe. And that small portion, that remnant, is a remnant in percentage. The percentage of people who truly believe will experience what we read in verses 45, 44 and 45. They will experience that. But this idea of a remnant should not surprise us. It should not alarm us. When we understand this is the way God always saves people from generation to generation. Yes, you may say, doesn't it say that we shall be like the stars of heaven and the sand of the seashore? Does it not say, I saw a great multitude in heaven which no one could count, men from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation? Yes, all that's true. But that is true in terms of quantity from the beginning of time to the end of time. The, the quantity, the total number, is innumerable, and that's what is meant in passages such as Revelation 7, 9. I saw a great multitude which no one could count, like the stars and like the sand, right? That's the quantity, the full number of the chosen or the saved from the beginning to the end of time. But on the other hand, what discourages us is when we see that very few people are sincere, very few people are genuine, very few people are seeking for the truth to be saved from their sins and to walk with Christ, to grow in Christ and to live a godly life. Very few people desire that. So let me illustrate very quickly. In the book of Genesis, how many people were saved in the whole world out of minimally hundreds of thousands or tens of millions, or hundreds of millions, but I believe, and many others believe, that there were billions of people on the globe 
when the great flood in the days of Noah came. How many people were spared that destruction? Only eight. Only eight of them. And if you even take a number like eight out of a hundred thousand or eight out of a million, it's still a very, very, very small number of people spared from that destruction. How many people were saved out of Sodom and Gomorrah? Adma and Zeboim. There were actually four cities. We, we often say shorthand Sodom and Gomorrah or simply Sodom, but there were four cities, two big ones and two smaller ones, four cities. If you can imagine in the average city and Sodom in, in that area, that's many generations later after the flood, there probably were at least tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands or millions of people in those four cities. But how many were spared out of Sodom and Gomorrah in that generation? We do know Abraham and some in his household, they were saved. But if we take that example, Genesis 18 and 19, Sodom and Gomorrah, only one. Only one out of those four cities. Why? Because Lot's wife, and we're talking about Lot, Lot was righteous according to 2 Peter 2, 6-8. Lot was spared, but his wife became a pillar of salt. 19.26, Genesis 19. She looked back and became a pillar of salt. And we know the immoral behavior of Lot's two daughters against their own father by the end of the chapter 19. So only Lot out of all of those. What about Elijah's complaint? Remember Elijah? He lived in the time of Ahab and Jezebel in the book of 1 Kings, mainly 1 Kings 16 to 2 Kings chapter 2. That is the section of Elisha, uh, Elijah, and then Elisha after him. Elijah the prophet, remember in chapter 19, 1 Kings 19, he's fleeing from persecution and he's praying to God and in his prayer, he complains, he says, I alone am left. I alone am left. Now, technically speaking, God corrects him and and says, there are 7,000 that I have left. You are not the only one, but 7,000. But if we compute the population in that day, uh, a fair computation of the number of people minimally would have been 7 million. 7 million. But God said, I have 7,000. So let's say 7,001, including Elijah. 7,001 out of 7 million, that is also a very small number. You see, these are just a few of the examples. And we also have many New Testament examples of this. How many in Acts chapter 1 waited in the upper room for the day of Pentecost? Just 10 days between resurrection, ascension, and the day of Pentecost. 10 days. How many waited there? Was it 5,000 plus women and children? Was it 4,000 plus women and children? No, only 120. 120 out of the crowds and crowds of people that followed Christ during his three and a half years of ministry, only 120 are there in the upper room. Acts 1, 15 and following. Only 120. So don't be alarmed, don't be discouraged. Then how is it that God works to save? What is the ultimate cause of our salvation, verses 44 and 45. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. 
No one can come. Why? Why is it impossible for anyone to come to Christ? He's saying this universally speaking, that no one can come to me. No one can believe in me. Why does he say no one can? Because he's already explained in chapter 3. John 3, verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. Verse 8. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. That means we must be born of the spirit. If we are of the flesh, which is all of us naturally, then we can't believe in Christ. John 6, 63. It is the spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The flesh profits nothing. It produces nothing. If the spirit does not give life, we in our natural state, the way we are born in the world, cannot do anything to cause our salvation. It must be the Holy Spirit who gives us life. That's why he says, no one can come to me. Then when we do come, why do we come? Verse 44, unless the Father who sent me draws him. If we do come to Christ, the Father is the one who draws us to Christ and Christ will raise us up on the last day. Meaning, once we have come to Christ, we will remain in Christ until the day of resurrection when he raises us all up from the dead. This is also assurance that what God starts in us, he will complete in us. Philippians 1.6 For I am confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. We have seen the first part of verse 44 and the last part of verse 44 in previous passages in this chapter. And we will see it again a little bit later. But the middle part, let's spend a little bit more time with it. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. The key word here is the Father drawing us to the Son. That is, from the Father to the Son. If the Father draws us, we come to the Son. We believe in the Son. If the Father does not draw us, we won't believe in the Son. He will expand on this meaning in verse 45. But in 44, the key word is draws, to draw. What did Christ mean here to draw? We see in the very verse that this drawing is effectual, correct? It accomplishes its purpose. Unless the Father who sent me draws him, and him I will raise up on the last day. You see how it is certain, it's absolute, it is fixed, that the Father draws him, and then the hymn is the hymn that Christ will raise up on the day of resurrection, on the last day. In the very verse, we have it effectual. We have it powerful. It accomplishes its purpose. Correct? But let's see more examples. We Keep your place here, and we will go on a journey from John to the book of Acts to see this illustrated and clarified. The book of Acts, and then one more, one more place later in the New Testament. This same word to draw 
in the original language will be translated to draw and also to drag and to haul. To, to draw, to drag, and to haul. Like to haul a load, okay? It will be like that, translated, but it is the same Greek word, but translated differently according to context. But let's see in each of these contexts whether these are definite, powerful drawings or haulings or draggings. Let's see if that happens, okay? The first one was John 6, 44. The second one, John 12, 32. John 12, 32. 12, 32 to 33. And I, if I be lifted up from the earth, will draw all to myself. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. Now, here we have what Jesus meant by being lifted up and drawing to himself. What did he mean when he said, if I be lifted up from the earth? Did he mean if we praise him, if we worship him in a worship service, if we make Christ attractive to our hearers, if we appeal to our hearers and have the right setting and have the right lights, the right music, the right words, the right smile on our faces, right? The right fashion design as we preach the word, right? If we set it up properly, is that what will draw people to him? Is that what he meant by lifting up to draw effectually? No. Look at verse 33. But he was saying this to indicate the kind of death by which he was to die. If I be lifted up means, if I be lifted up on the cross, if I be lifted up on the cross, once I am lifted up on the cross, then that will be the cause or that will be the basis, that will be the provision to draw all to believe in that cross. That's what he meant. But still we have to ask, is this going to happen effectually or possibly? Is this a potential or is this a definite and effectual drawing to Christ and to believing in the cross? Okay, now we see illustrations further. 18, 10. John 18, 10. Jesus is being arrested here. And in John 18, 10, it says, Simon Peter, therefore, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear and the slave's name was Malchus. Simon Peter has a sword. He draws it out of its sheath. When he takes his hand to the sword, the handle of the sword, what's he doing? Is he effectually pulling it out and wielding it to strike the slave? Yes. He's not possibly doing it. He is effectually doing it, right? Look also, Look also at um, John chapter 21, 6. John 21, 6. Now they are fishing. They are fishing. And Jesus instructs them. John 21, 6. And he said to them, Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you will find a catch. They cast therefore, and then they were not able to haul it in 
because of the great number of fish. So what are they doing when they're hauling it? They're dragging it, right? Eventually they, they do it, but what is it hauling? Hauling is not wooing. It's not setting up a nice situation to say good words or kind words about Jesus so that people are convinced of it, right? It's not softly and tenderly, as the song says. It's not like that. It is actually hauling it, jerking it in order to accomplish it. But look at verse 11. They eventually do. Simon Peter went up and drew the net to land. Drew the net. Draw. That's the same word, to draw, to haul. He drew the net to land full of large fish, 153, and although there were so many, the net was not torn. Acts chapter 16. Acts 16, 19. Acts 16 and verse... 19. Here we have an incident of the, the mob being aroused. And notice what it says. The mob is aroused against Paul. And 1619. But when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. That word dragged them is our same word from John 6, 44. God, or, or these people, it, um, dragged or drew them, hauled them off to the authorities. Furthermore, chapter 21, 21, verse 30. Acts 21, verse 30. Another such incident, another conflict where this occurs. And all the city was aroused, and the people rushed together, and taking hold of Paul, they dragged him out of the temple, and immediately the doors were shut. They dragged him out, hauled him out, drew him out of the temple. And one final one, one final one is James 2, 6. James 2, 6. But you have dishonored the poor man, is it not the rich who oppress you and personally drag you into court? They personally drag you into court. So what have we seen? When the Father chooses to save us, He definitely, effectually, powerfully overcomes our deadness, overcomes our stubbornness. He transforms it, us and makes us come to Christ or causes us to believe in Christ. He opens our eyes, changes our heart, opens our ears. He circumcises our heart. And the result is we believe or we come to Christ. Come to Christ and repent of sin. Is this what we've seen? One more. And that is verse 45. John six forty-five. John 6, 45, it is written in the prophets and they all shall be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. They all shall be taught of God is taken from Isaiah 54, 13, the passage we read earlier. Isaiah 54, 13, which concept is also in Jeremiah 31, 34. Jeremiah 31, 34, the concept of God teaching the people, the people who 
end up believing. These people, in other words, are taught of God. But who all are taught of God? Is every person who ever lives in the world taught of God? No, many people don't even hear the word of God to be taught of God, right? So he's not saying every person who ever lives in the world. Many people live in dark places where they never hear the word of Christ. He's not talking about them. Is he talking about they all? Is he talking about everybody who actually does hear the word of God? Everyone who actually does hear the word of God? No. In the very context, this crowd, Jesus is telling this crowd, you're not one of these. He's telling this wicked crowd, this grumbling crowd, you're not one of these. So it's no guarantee that everybody who hears the word of God will actually come to Christ or believe in Christ. He's not saying that. And we have plenty of evidence, which we recited earlier, and even at the end of this chapter. Judas Iscariot was not only someone who heard the word of God, he was personally, externally and verbally taught by Christ himself, the best teacher in the world, and Judas never believed. Judas was not one of these taught of God. In this context, therefore, to be taught of God is not just hearing somebody preach it, hearing somebody explain the word of God to you, or even reading it yourself. To be taught of God has to do with that which is spiritual, that which is secret, that which is mysterious and miraculous, which God does to us, we who are saved. So, he says in 45, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We have to hear and learn from the Father to come to Christ or to believe in Christ. This is not the only place in Scripture where this doctrine is taught. We just saw Isaiah 54, 13, and I mentioned Jeremiah 31, 34. Let's look at three New Testament passages besides this one. The first is Matthew 16, 17. Matthew 16, 17. Jesus is with the twelve. And Simon Peter speaks up to, to answer the question, but who do you say that I am? And Simon's answer will start at verse 16. 16, 16. Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Well, where did this answer originate? Did it originate in the goodness and the wonderfulness of Simon's heart? No. Look at 17. And Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. My Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. It didn't come from your own goodness. It did not come from your own flesh and blood. It came from my Father. Further, 1 Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians verse 9. The letter to the Thessalonians is written to the Thessalonian Christians, right? The Thessalonian Christians. And this is what Paul says of them. 1 Thessalonians 4.9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by 
God to love one another. You are taught by God or taught of God, taught from God to love one another. Is this not one of the immediate characteristics of a newborn person, of a Christian who has truly been born again? He used to despise people. Now he begins to find ways to love people, to love one another. That change occurs in him because he's taught by God. And one more example, 1 Corinthians 12. 1 Corinthians 12, verse 3. 1 Corinthians 12, 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is accursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Here we have the agent used by the Father. The Father is the ultimate teacher, the origin of us being taught. But the agent he sends to teach us is the secret work of the Holy Spirit. And when we have the Holy Spirit who enlivens us or makes us alive, who regenerates us, when we have the Holy Spirit doing that for us, then we confess Jesus is Lord. But we won't confess in truth. He means this in truth because even the demons know Jesus is the Son of God and God is one. But he means here, we say it honestly, sincerely, in truth, Jesus is Lord. We could only say that by the Holy Spirit. If the Holy Spirit is sent by the Father to give us life, then we confess Jesus is Lord, which is a manifestation of our faith in Him, of believing in Him, of coming to Him. Jesus is Lord. Remember, John 3, John 3, Jesus said this very thing as well. John 3, 8, The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. The, the powerful and mysterious wind that blows every day in this world, we don't know all of its effects. Just as we don't know how the Holy Spirit is working and will use His Word preached to save people. And when they are saved, it's known here as everyone who is born of the Spirit. So we have to be born of the Spirit to believe, to repent, to be forgiven of sins, to be saved, to have eternal life. This is what we should seek. We should seek for God by our prayers and by our ministry of the Word, because faith comes from hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. By our prayers, petitioning God, the Father, to send forth His Spirit to convert our families and our friends. Let's do so. And not be discouraged. Not be discouraged. Let's seek for this true kind of faith and conversion. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.